Welcome back, Unscript listeners. This is Matt Lynch, one of the co-hosts of this podcast alongside Drew Johnson and Matt Bates. I'm based here in the UK. Matt Bates is in Illinois at Quincy University, and Drew Johnson is at the King's College in New York City, although right now he's at St. Andrews in Scotland doing research for a year. A quick note here, please listen all the way to the end of this episode because we're going to share some of what you've been reading, what you think are some of the game-changing books in the fields of biblical studies. If you have any more that you'd like to share with us, send a note about a book that's impacted you and why via email to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com, and we're going to be sharing some of those. Also, a special note of thanks to Ed Hathke, who's been doing some sound editing and production work for us. Not on this episode, but he's going to be helping out in future episodes. We're all thrilled to have Ed join the OnScript team, so thank you, Ed. Finally, you'll probably notice that OnScript goes year-round. One of our aims is to provide you with a steady bi-monthly stream of content from the front lines of biblical studies and to bring you conversations from three guys with confessional orthodox convictions, but a desire to engage with a wider and fascinating field of study. To keep up this pace, we put in quite a bit of background work, which comes at some cost. So if you've benefited in some way from the work of OnScript and would like to contribute to help make this possible, please consider making a $2 or maybe a $5 a month donation to the podcast, and you can do that at onscript.study forward slash donate. Or if that's not possible, please know that we still love you. Okay, Drew's at the helm for this one, so I'll hand it over to him. causes sin. Are we just temptation scales waiting to be tipped over in favor of our lesser angels? Do we sin because our free will fails us? At some point in history, a first century Jewish teacher stumbles out of Galilee saying things like, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. That's Matthew 18, 9. Unbeknownst to some Christians today, Jesus' teaching on sin's causes and its solutions enters the fray of a lively literary and sectarian discussion. Ancient Jews had lots of ideas about how demons influence us to sin, how the Torah can heal us from sin, and the role of closed communities in solving our sin. How can we understand this raucous panoply of sin and evil talk in Second Temple Judaism? Never fear, Dr. Miriam Brand has not only researched sin and evil in the Second Temple Judaism text, that is, Jewish texts from 400 BCE to 100 CE, but she has also published a book on her findings, and she also runs a podcast called Understanding Sin and Evil, making all of her research highly accessible to listeners. Dr. Brand holds a PhD in Bible and Late Antiquity, specialty in Dead Sea Scrolls, from New York University, and an associate fellowship in the Albright Institute of Archaeological Research. She also has an MBA in Marketing and Finance from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She currently works in both fields, teaching and research in Second Temple literature, while working as a marketing manager for a high-tech company here in Israel. 
And today I'm not from my normal perch in Manhattan, New York. Uh, rather, I'm speaking with Miriam here in Jerusalem about her monograph, Evil Within and Without, The Source of Sin and Its Nature as Portrayed in Second Temple Literature, published by Vandenhoek and Ruprecht, 2013. Miriam, thank you for joining us today on OnScript. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So just to begin with, uh, Miriam, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and especially tell us um, how you got so personally interested in sin, evil, demons, etc.? Uh, okay, with pleasure. Uh, I am. Um, I grew up in Israel, but I went to the States to New York University for my PhD, and there I did a PhD in Bible and Second Temple Judaism, uh, in particular Dead Sea Scrolls. I find that I usually teach more Bible, actually, and write more about Second Temple Judaism. Uh, what got me interested in sin and evil, well, there's the technical reason. The technical, I was actually interested in repentance, and I started working on repentance, or I was starting to be interested in repentance, and I would go to conferences, and people would say, oh, you're going to do repentance? You better talk to this guy. And this guy was a guy who was at Harvard who has, was already writing his dissertation on repentance in the Second Temple period. Um, long story short, his book came out way after mine, and I was kind of bummed. I was like, oh, I could have done repentance. Is this David Lambert by any chance? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and... Um, but, uh, but so I said, oh, well, I can't do repentance. So what will I do? And I decided to do the source of sin as it's portrayed in Second Temple literature. So that's like the evil inclination and demons. And so that's what I thought was the reason. But I was once walking in the aisle of the National Library and I started humming to myself. Uh, and what I was humming was dun 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 dun. So those of you who are classical music lovers, that's the overture of Larlesienne, Bizet's Larlesienne. And the reason I was singing it to myself was because when I was a little girl, I had a record. And in the record, it was a record of stories. This was the days when you actually had records. This was an actual record. You flipped it. Um, I had a record and it had stories. And, um, you can always edit this later. <laughs> um, and one story was about a little girl who's walking on the Sabbath, and they called it the Sabbath. She's walking on the Sabbath, and she sees a dime on the ground. And she hears two voices. One is a good voice. No, Sarah, don't pick up the dime. You know, it's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to. And the other one is, pick up the dime, Sarah. You can buy 10 candies with this dime. I didn't know where this girl shopped. Even then, I knew as a little girl that you could not buy 10 candies with a dime. And, but she, the end, of course, she decides to listen to the good voice. And Larlesienne was the theme music of the story. Larlesienne used Larlesienne as the introductory music and then the end music when she has overcome her evil inclination. Cause that was the way it was portraying that whole uh, struggle. And for me, I had never, ever experienced that, but I was willing to suspend my disbelief. And say, well, this girl apparently hears voices and, you know, I, I guess the, I'm supposed to believe in this for the length of the story. But apparently this had enough of an effect on me. And I know that I used to listen to that story over and over and over as a little girl. So I, I wonder, I actually, the reason I did the PhD on what I did on was actually deep-seated childhood experience. <laughs> that is the best answer to the question. I could have ever imagined. Okay, I was not expecting that whatsoever. Uh, so you met a guy named David Lambert, who we all know and love now. Yeah. Okay, he's working on a repentance. 
And then a song played, which cued off a story. Well, I was, no, I was, after I was already working on the dissertation, you know, I was humming it to myself and I was like, oh, that's why this is what I'm writing about. This is podcast liquid gold. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to talk uh, a little bit. Uh, well, hey, can you can you just tell us a little bit about your academics? So after NYU, you did a couple of postdocs oh, and fellowships. Yeah. So uh, can you tell us what you did in those? Oh, okay. Well, um, in my first fellowship, my first postdoc, that was at the Albright Institute. The um, it's an archaeological institute here in Jerusalem, and there I worked on turning my dissertation into a book, um, evil within and without. The source of sin and its nature is portrayed in Second Temple literature. Um, it's it's a very it's a it's a dense book, uh, which is really mainly for libraries. Um, and I also wrote a commentary on Enoch for outside the Bible. So that was what I did in my first postdoc. And for those that don't know what the Albright Institute is, where is it, and what do they do? Okay, well, it's in um, it's in East Jerusalem. It's on Salah Hadin Street. It's um, not far from um, from Sharshchem, from the the Nablus Gate. No, the Damascus, Damascus Gate. Gate. Damascus Gate. It should be Nablus Gate, but okay, it's so Damascus Gate. Uh, <laughs> and um, and what they do there is essentially there are a lot of um, there are a lot of archaeologists who stay there. And some people get funding through it, but it's not just archaeologists; it's also text people. Uh, they do kind of run certain digs, but it's actually a great place. Uh, if any of my, uh, any of your listeners have the opportunity to do a postdoc there or any kind of fellowship, it is a great place to do a fellowship because a lot of people come through there. Everyone has dinner together. You can talk to each other and really learn a lot. Indeed, one of our co-hosts, Matt Lynch, uh, used to be a postdoc fellow at uh, Albright as well. Uh, okay, I want to talk about methodology, how you do this kind of survey of Second Tem- Temple Judaism literature. Uh, and I, I have a couple, I'm going to read you some of your own quotes uh, and, and just get your take and ask you to unpack them. So one of the first things I ran across, which is a problem that I've run across in my own research, you say, uh, quote, Thus, terminological studies frequently give undue emphasis to particular texts and ignore other relevant passages that deal with similar concepts or themes. So you're talking about studies that just basically go through terms and try to look yeah. at how they're worked out. So could you unpack why those are problem or they can be problematic? Okay, well, first of all, um, part of the reason that they're problematic is because they're so easy to do. So people will very frequently rely on, you can, like, I, I, I know of a, of a scholar who he wanted to write about the evil inclination in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so he simply opened up a concordance to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and wherever evil inclination showed up, or inclination, I should say, showed up, Yetzel showed up, that was part of that was part of his article. It was very easy to do. Um, he did correct it later because in earlier vision, versions he was including certain things that we're not actually talking about the evil inclination. Of course, he was skipping things that were actually speaking about a concept similar to the evil inclination. And that's, that's the really problematic nature of doing a terminological survey. Unless you're actually doing a linguistic survey, which of course is legitimate. Um, if you're looking at a concept, you should realize that it's a concept. There are different ways of talking about this concept. There are different ways that it's going to play out. And it's very easy to miss if you're just focusing on certain words. So sometimes the concept can be expressed in different words, and if you're focused on the words, you might miss the different expressions of the concept. You will almost certainly miss the different expressions of the concept. 
All right. Excellent. Uh, and also in the, your methodological chapter, I, I love methodological chapters. I know a lot of people skip them. Um, but you also note that uh, there's a difficulty in looking for theological consistency on even things like sin and evil that you would think would just be ubiquitously defined and, and renowned. There's a difficulty finding consistency uh, theologically across these texts. Maybe you could just describe why that can be difficult. You mean the difficulty of finding consistency in general or like theological across, consistency? Across like uh, oh, Wow, there's so okay. So you will almost never find consistency um, um, across any, even even frequently even single texts. Uh, it, I think particularly because in the mod, I I think it's um, something that we expect in the modern period. We expect some kind of consistency. Uh, we expect consistency of a thinker. We expect consistency of a book. If if you asked me. Why isn't there theological consistency in the book of Ben Sirah, right? I could talk about, forget about Second Temple texts, where, of course, Second Temple Judaism, you have people coming from with different approaches who, who believe completely, who believe very different things theologically or different things practically, coming from different backgrounds. So across Second Temple texts, you're going to have a huge range. And then even across a certain thinker, that thinker might have uh, I think many, um, so I, I was just, um, this is, this is on my mind a lot because I just, I just did a couple of podcast episodes on Ben Sira and then on Philo. And uh, Ben Sira, who of course is a Judean thinker, you could say, right, in the second century, in the second, say, say about 200 BCE. And Philo, who is a philosopher, as it were, a philosopher slash exegete, in Alexandria and Egypt, close to the destruction of the Second Temple in 40 CE. And neither of them is consistent. And Ben Sira in particular is very contextual in his approach. In other words, the approach that he's going to display in any particular passage is dealing with a specific issue and dealing in a specific context. He's not in my opinion, it's not that he's he's making a mistake. He's not expecting of himself this kind of theological consistency that's going to go across every single situation. If in one place what he wants to show is that people have free will and God is not responsible for their sins, that's what he's going to talk about. In another place, he wants to say, why is there evil in the world? He's going to give a different solution. And in yet another place, when he wants to say, why are some people holy and some people are not holy, he's going to give present a fairly deterministic uh, um, outlook. And it's, um, it's actually this, in my opinion, you actually kind of started me off in a hole. In my opinion, no one thinks in a completely consistent way. I think that coming personally from a religious worldview, that's very clear to me because, uh, because it's so easy to point to places where at this point I'm saying this, but at this other time I'm believing that and acting this other way within the context of religion. And I think it's because life is inconsistent. The world is inconsistent and we need different approaches to different, to different situations. But I think that if you actually sat with, let's say an atheist and said, what do you think about this? But then what if this happens? You'll also find a very contextual approach to basic philosophical problems. So, uh, and, and in the second temple period, no one's saying, oh, you must be consistent. Oh, this doesn't follow philosophically. Okay. So let's talk about sin and evil, the big topic of the day. Um, 
So in this book, you deal with, uh, interestingly, I think the way you put it, um, basically, you, you have to think mostly about what sources of, of sin and evil are. And when you identify what the sources of sin and evil are, and, and we're talking about in these texts that you're looking at, then you can see a reasonable, what they consider a reasonable solution to that sin uh, and evil. And that um, if you miss the source of sin, then you're, you're going to maybe misidentify what they consider a solution to the sin. Is that correct? Or here, let me quote you a little bit. Quote, you say, quote, in essence, the human capability to sin is the strongest declaration of freedom of action within a religious system. Uh, and then you talk about sinful acts and human sinfulness on the one hand, um, and then demonic influence on, on the other hand, which we'll have to get to demons a little bit later. Uh, but uh, how do you see the sources of sin portrayed in the Dead Sea Scroll? You're working uh, with yeah. both Dead Sea Scrolls and just Second Temple Judaism yeah. in, in general. Um, but how do you see those portrayed? And then maybe uh, at some point here we can put those in conversation with some New Testament ideas. Okay. All right. So first of all, I want to I want to um, roll back something you said. The two sources are not, um, on the one hand, human sinfulness and sinful acts. And on the other hand, demonic influence. Because what I'm looking at, and this this actually um, very early on um, became something I had to pay attention to, and it also highlighted for me the difference in um, in the approach of uh, let's say Judaism, at least in the in the modern day, the approach of Judaism to a sin and the approach of I can't talk about Christianity in general, but but but. Um, at least a significant part of Christianity to sin where there's this idea of, of sinfulness of being in sin, uh, is not, uh, when, if you ask, uh, just, just someone, a, a regular Orthodox Jew and you say, what is sin? And he will say, well, disobeying God, doing something against God, as opposed to it being a state, right? So uh, I actually was looking at, um, I note where it's described as a state because there are absolutely texts in Second Temple Judaism that describe sinfulness as a state of being. Um, and what I, but I was looking at is what do they see is the source of sinful acts, of desire to sin and sinfulness in terms of what, where's it coming from? So the source would be, let's say, uh, human sinfulness. In other words, uh, a kind of a human inclination towards sin. That's part of human nature. Or something external to the person, which is uh, things like demonic influence. Okay, so um, in terms of the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay, well, let me... Um, can, real quickly, can we define what are the collection of texts that we generally consider the Dead Sea Scrolls? And then where okay. do the what, when we talk about Second Temple Judaism text, how do those relate to the Dead Sea Scrolls? I know it's a complex relationship, so I, I give us a thumbnail. <laughs> I love these questions because you're like asking a question, and I'm like, every single one could be a course. Like, oh yeah, just say this in like five minutes. Um, okay, so the Dead Sea Scrolls um, are a collection, of course, of scrolls that we have from from the Dead Sea area, and they represent a, a number of different genres. Now, realize they also represent copies of what we consider regular Second Temple works that were also read by the Qumran community or the Qumran sect, and they were copied over by them. So, for example, uh, most of the sections of First Enoch right, are, were also, in at least in fragments, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So a lot of times when we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, we are talking about those texts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were not 
kept in other collections. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that they weren't also reading these other texts. They were reading first Enoch, for example, they were reading Jubilees. Those books are major second temple works that we find outside of the community as well. So, um, so when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and, and now I'm going to talk about those things that were found specifically only among the scrolls, what we have are a collection of um, certain exegetical texts like the Pesher, Pesher Nachon, Pesher Chavakok. These were texts that were reading the um, that were reading the books of the Bible as if they were speaking about the sect. You know, in other words, this is it. This this passage in Chavakok is talking about what happened to us last year. Um, uh, that's the that's the Pesher, which is a, a new type of Jewish commentary that we found among the scrolls. Uh, we have prayer. We have different types of prayer. We have curses. We have um, we have some wisdom literature. We have their law books, of course. Um, so we have a very wide range of texts. And then we have, um, so their law books, uh, seem to be, so for example, if I talk about, let's say the Damascus document, which is one of their, one of the legal texts, and the Sarah Chayachad, which is another legal text that was found in the same, you know, in the, in the, um, among the collection, these books do not necessarily always agree with each other and they show a different attitude towards certain things. Um, and the prayers also, a lot of frequently, particularly with the prayers, the question is, were these prayers specific to the sect? Or were they sectarian, right? Or were they not? And, and what happens is we look for certain indications that seem to point to a sectarian nation. For example, if it starts talking about the Yachad as the community, so that, that's, that's kind of a, a giveaway. Or, certain ideas. They tended to be uh, relatively deterministic. They felt that God cast lots in the beginning of time. The people decided who's going to be kind of in and who's going to be out. Now, once you actually look at the legal texts, and that's what was interesting for me, once you really look at the introductions to the legal texts, it, it, I, I found that it emphasized free will, actually. It emphasized choice, as opposed to the determinism that you would expect within a framework of determinism, because after all, if you've chosen the community, that means you were determined to be righteous. Um, but at the same time, in at least in um, in um, in the Damascus document, in the in the um, in the introduction, it gives kind of a history of the history of the world where where it says repeatedly, you need to choose the commandments of God and not your own will. Choose, choose, choose. So you, you actually have this kind of emphasis on choice in certain texts, despite the generally deterministic attitude of the of the community. And um, and I could go on and on. Um, but uh, yeah, no, yeah. this is fantastic. And I mean, I think of uh, even you know people who are chemical physicalists today that believe that everything is determined by the gas, the gases, explosives that are going out. But they'll still ask you what you want for lunch today, right? Uh, so even so, you can. It's not unusual for people to hold both of these intention that you believe everything's uh, fatally determined, and but we right. we have right. some kind of will. But, but also, and also, just uh, one interesting thing is if we talk about a state of sinfulness, that's actually something we see a lot more in sectarian prayer than we would see non-sectarian prayer. Yeah, this idea that you that humans, because they are humans, are kind of in this state of sinfulness. Now, again, that doesn't. Not as a connection to what we would call original sin, okay? Because original sin, and this is 
interesting, um, this is interesting uh, for us, particularly if you asked about the New Testament, um, original sin is not an idea that we find a lot in the extant second, second temple text. In, fi- in fact, we barely find it at all until after the destruction. Now, of course, you say, well, Paul is a Jew living during the second temple period. So, you know, but, but um, if there's a hint to the idea in, in one verse in Ben Sira, and then we have it as a very prominent idea in fourth Ezra and second Baruch. And in those books, which are written right after the destruction, they're actually reacting to the destruction. Both of them are, are very much reacting to this idea or espousing this idea. In the, in the case of fourth Ezra, certainly espousing the idea that we are sinful either because Adam sinned or just because we inherited it from Adam. And then you have this great line in uh, second Baruch, which is, um, do not say my sin is from Adam. Um, each of us is his own Adam, right? I, I love that line. Uh, um, but, um, but what's interesting is that all of a sudden after the destruction, this is clearly a really prominent idea. Whereas before, at least in the text that we had, you, you would barely have known about it at all. Okay. So, um, this kicks off. I was going to save this question until later, but it's apropos now. Uh, you talked about the community rule, which is a, a, a set of rules for the Qumran community that we, so I'd like you to describe maybe just really quickly what that, the community rule looks like. Um, and you have this discussion there about, uh, amongst the, the Dead Sea Scroll, the, the rules for living in the community there, you talk about how, uh, in order to fight your inclination to sin, you join this community. So you've already talked about this kind of insider, outsider uh, speak, the yeah. sectarianism. So for most people today who are religious, they, you know, you hear, Hey, you join a community in order to fight your sin. They hear cult, Jim Jones. So yeah. how is this functioning for them? Okay. Well, first of all, I would like to say, and this is something, this is not something I've talked about in general, but they do function pretty much like a cult. I mean, the, the way they actually behave. And what was interesting to me, I, 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 uh, a few years ago, I came across some accounts of a, um, of a cult, it was a um, um, like a self a self improvement cult. It was like one of these things where people go in and they, they want to make themselves better people. And it had aspects that we have at Qumran, and the same thing where they could get up and leave. Like anyone at Qumran, no one would stop them from leaving, um, and no one you know was uh, feeding them some special food that would make them not be able to think. Anyone could get up and leave. And the same thing with this community. Anyone could get up and leave, but they wanted to be better people. And they believed to be better people, they had to stay and they had to confess their sins in a group. And they had to be publicly humiliated. They had to be humiliated for the group and rebuked in front of the group and all these things. And, and in, in, um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I don't think they're necessarily meant to be humiliated. They're not, been, but they are meant to be pup rebuked in front of the group for things that they've done, and they need to kind of, you know, it's it, it's and they can, and if they do something that's wrong, their rations can be cut. Um, they can be they can be um, put under house arrest. They can it it it, it functions a lot like a cult, and, and again, there's really nothing, and there's nothing in the rules to keep them from getting up and leaving. Right. Um, and, but I, but you do get the feeling that the people who stayed honestly believe this is, this is, this is, they want to be righteous people. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I actually do think they, they seem to be pretty cultish. Uh, and of course it depends on which rule book you read, exactly how cultish they are. Um, and do they, you know, because you have, uh, you have different, 
different ideas. Did they, could they marry, right? Um, in the, uh, in, in the community rule, there's no mention. It never says they can't marry. There's simply no mention of women or wives. In the Damascus document, it talks about wives. It talks about marrying. And not only that, but there's a rule book which is supposed to be essentially for the Messianic age. And it says in the Messianic age, a man is not going to be able to marry, I think, until he's 20. He, he, he will only be able to marry when he's 20. So clearly, there's not this kind of um, um, shunning of marriage that we think of in terms of, in terms of the Dead Sea sect. Now, note that, uh, just as an aside... Um, the, the Essenes, when we, whenever we hear about the Essenes, we hear about the, how they don't marry, or maybe they marry in the city and they don't marry in certain, you know, in other places. Um, but that's one of the first things that anyone who mentions the Essenes says. And, and it's been pointed out that, uh, this is similar to, uh, sects such as, such as the Shakers. The first thing you say about the Shakers is they don't marry because it's such an unusual thing. It's such a harsh thing to take on. And so it's the first thing anyone is going to say about them as a group. However, nowhere in the rule books of the Dead Sea community does it say that they shouldn't marry. And which might mean that, that it's not a one-to-one relationship. That they're not a scenes, at least not in the exact meaning of the word. And there was maybe there a community that has things in common with the Essenes. There maybe there's an overlap, but not quite. Okay, so this this gets me thinking about because you know some of the things that come up in these kind of yeah. discussions with marriage in particular, and I'm speaking a little bit just straight out of ignorance here, but thinking about sexuality laws and cleanliness, that this would be a big deal for them. So maybe this is some of the assumptions people are bringing in here. But it also brings me back to the more general uh, thing that you do talk about in your book. Um, the relationship of Torah to sin and how wow. you see yeah. how some people see Torah as a, or a solution to sin or yeah. a cure or an aid or an, uh, yeah. so maybe you could talk about how Torah functions yeah. here. Yeah. And, and it just as an aside about the sexuality, since you said something, um, it, it actually, one of, one of the surprising things to me when I read the Dead Sea Scrolls is how they are not particularly obsessed with sex. They don't seem to be this isn't a, if you compare it to rabbinic texts where they're always talking about this desire and, you know, and, and, you know, and you're like, let it go already. But, but yeah, it, it, it's, 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 you're like, wow. Um, and, but not in the Dead Sea community. Now, it could be just there are different things of what you write that for the rabbis, they felt you should write about it. And for these guys, they're like, no, we're not going to write about it. But, but there isn't the same obsession. Um, with, with sex or with, you know, you know, with relations, it, it doesn't seem to be a huge issue, even though, again, that could simply be because of different, um, norms regarding writing what you're going to write down in, in, in your, in your text. Um, so, um, uh, Torrensen. This is really interesting because I actually never understood in the Talmud, uh, when we get the, um, when we get the pers- uh, kind of uh, the personified evil inclination, right? there's an evil inclination that he talks about him almost like he's a demon. So you're, he's part of you, but you can do things to him. He wants to kill you, right? And you should drag him down to the Beit Midrash, to the study hall, and that's going to defeat him. And I never understood why, where's this idea? Why would dragging him to the study hall defeat him? 
And once I started reading Second Temple texts, I see that there's this basic idea that the Torah has power to defeat sin. Now, that includes, obviously, the very reasonable thing that, okay, if you learn the law, then you'll know what the law is, you'll keep the law, and you won't sin. Um, but also in terms of a much more uh, metaphysical uh, way of, of kind of combating sin, so that someone who's praying in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have a prayer where he says... Um, the the um, your laws are within me and they're battling with these demonic forces that want me to sin that are coming within me and so torah is meant to defeat sin and then if we go back to fourth ezra again written after the destruction so it it it, it shows certain other um certain other aspects of sin uh fourth ezra ezra who's the protagonist ezra um, is argue, argues with the angel. The angel's attitude is essentially, and I would, I, I would argue that the angel in fourth Ezra is kind of taking the party line, right? The party line is you got the Torah. That was enough. Now you shouldn't sin. And Ezra says, no, because you didn't remove the evil heart from within us. In other words, you didn't remove the evil inclination. And so we still sin. And not only that, now we get punished for it. So, um, this idea is so taken for granted that in fourth Ezra, the author is actually arguing against it. Um, but we see it across the board. We see it in, in, uh, wisdom literature, you know, that, that if you learn the law, that'll just allow you to, to have control over your desire to sin. We have it in these prayers where, you know, the laws are actually fighting with these demonic forces. We really have it across the board. And then this, for me at least, explained later on when we have when we have rabbinic literature why going to the study hall or dragging your evil inclination to study hall, quote unquote, is supposed to defeat it. Okay. Wow, this drags up so many things. Um, I'm wondering about like in the Tehillim, the first uh, Psalm, right? Yeah. It's uh, blessed is the man who uh, Hagah meditates on the Torah. It's his delight. Uh, day and night he meditates upon it. But there you have it. This kind of such a general benefit, and he has yeah. to avoid evil people and scoffers and mockers, right? But here you're saying it's almost like that's all been personified into an internal battle. Well, I, I would say it's really the opposite because I, I think that, um, and this is this. Let's go back for a second to the Dead Sea Scrolls because you were talking about the other uh, before. Is that we shouldn't think in the Second Temple period? In it seems seems to me in general, not just in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, there isn't this conflation of sinners with one's own desire to sin, right? I'm a righteous person. So if I learn something about my own desire to sin, that's something important. But why that guy sins? Well, he's evil, right? So, <laughs> you know, it, and, yeah, right. It's, it's, it's very different. And I actually think and this was one of the puzzles that I had when I started, um, when I started working on this was how little the oracle to Cain, to Cain is used in Second Temple literature. You, you don't see it used as an explanation of sin. And here you have a verse where God is explaining sin to Cain. You would kind of expect that it would echo somewhere. And the only place it kind of echoes is when they're referring to like demons or evil people. And the answer, and I think the answer, I think that the answer is because since Cain is, you know, the first murderer, whatever explanation of his sin is, is not relevant to us. Like, who cares where his sin came from? He's evil. Okay? We want to know why I want to sin. And that is, that's the big puzzle for Second Temple Jews. Why do I want to sin? I'm a righteous person. 
And there is that attitude and there is that idea that I can be a righteous person even if I sinned yesterday and if I'm going to sin tomorrow, right? But why? Why do I want to sin? Because I'm a righteous person I, 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 and, and God created me, so why do I want to sin? And they're really trying to, to puzzle this out and they're looking for an explanation. So what, so in the community rule, when they talk about being in the lot of Blial, um, those guys who are in the lot of Blial, well, they're clearly evil, right? Oh right, so Blial is the major bad guy for the Dead Sea for the Dead Sea community. Uh, he's he's Satan, right? Um, pretty much. Um, the they have a certain uh, problem because it, oh, he's a little like I, I, I'm obviously oversimplifying. He's not Satan. He's but he's the reason why they uh, are persecuted, right? Because this is the age in which Blial is set free. God, in His mysterious wisdom, has allowed um, Blial to be set free in the current age. And the it will end, you know, at the eschaton with the destruction of Blial and all his minions. Um, so Blial is the bad guy. Uh, people who are part of the community, they belong to um, Goral Ha'el, the, the lot of God. Blial, those people who belong to Blial, belong to Goral Blial, the lot of Blial. Um, and, and yet... And, and we see Blial uh, plays out a little differently in, again, in the Damascus document and the community rule. In the community rule, it really is, you know, anyone who's not in the community, they belong to the lot of Blial, they're evil. Obviously, someone can join the community, and that means that they're, that they're not part of the, the lot of Blial, they're part of the lot of God. Whereas in the Damascus document, Blial misleads people. And by joining the community, you can protect yourself, you can no longer be mis- misled by Blial. And I would, uh, um, I think that the Damascus document um, is explaining not just why, why, um, why are we persecuted, but why aren't people accepting that our law is right? Like we have the correct law, why can't everyone see it? So the answer is they're misled by Blial. Yeah, I've often felt that way when teaching classes; <laughs> <laughs> they just accept it. Uh, one more thing on sin, and then I want to move on to the demon stuff just uh. briefly. Uh, but let me quote you again to yourself here and see if you can remember saying this. Uh, quote, you say, quote, throughout all prayers reviewed here, the possibility of human free will in controlling the urge to sin is either diminished or negated. The internal inclination to sin is portrayed as a basic and inescapable aspect of the human being, controllable only with divine assistance. It is this assistance that is requested or gratefully acknowledged in prayer. So this is a section where you're talking about prayer and the kinds of tropes that you're finding in those prayers. And I, and I, I can't help but think that a Christian readers who are reading that, you know, people who go to my church, they would go like, well, yeah, of course. That's, you know, this is what we've always thought, right? That we have an inclination to sin. We pray to get God's help to help us not sin. So, um, are we missing something by just saying, yeah, of course? Uh, and, it seems that you want to resituate this back into a debate about the inclination of the sin of the first century in which the New Testament texts enter that debate. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Well, I didn't have that necessarily as a purpose, but I'm, I was coming, you know, uh, realized that in my book, my, I was really approaching things by genre. And I was looking and saying, what does the genre of prayer kind of dictate in terms of how we look at the source of sin? Now, if, um, um, while you say, well, that's really obvious, I'm going to say something now. I'm going to step outside of prayer for a second. Um, pretty much, in my experience, and I haven't done this a lot, um, but if I say to uh, someone who's a mo- at least a modern Orthodox Jew, 
And I say, um, um, I say, well, and they say, well, what did you write about? I said, well, I was, um, I was looking at, you know, what people thought was the source of sin and, you know, how that interacted with ideas of determinism, free will. And they'll say something like, well, obviously, usually it's actually, usually he will say, it's usually a guy who is mansplaining uh, my study to me. <laughs> he will usually say, um, well, we know that it is the evil inclination. We all have an evil inclination, but we have the free will to do evil or not. In other words, we have an evil, evil inclination, we'll have free will. And then I say, well, that's exactly what Ben Sirius says in chapter 15, but not everyone says that. So that is kind of the standard Jewish approach. Now, obviously, there are, there are exceptions. Um, uh, the Ishbitzer, the, uh, um, a Hasidic Rebbe who is, was unusual in his belief in determinism, for example. But most in general, that, that's kind of going to be the, 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 the quick response. And if I say to them, well, but every morning at the end of your morning blessings, you ask God for help against the evil inclination. So if you're, if you, it's your free, everything's your free will, why are you asking God? And, and they might say something like, well, we need God's help in the beginning. Or, um, or well, that's a prayer. You know, when we pray, of course, we're going to ask for God's help, and and that and that answer is, of course, completely correct. When you pray, you are automatically you're you are you are um, addressing the divine. You are saying, "I am so small, God is so big, I am helpless, and God can help me." Um, but and that that may seem obvious, but sometimes you have to. The same way it might seem obvious that when you're reading, when you're writing a book of wisdom literature, you're going to say certain things, and then in prayer, you're going to say something else. Now, when Ben Sira writes in prayer, he again says, God, you need, God, please help us, you know, not have these, these desires. Um, when, you know, Philo, when he talks about prayer, he says, you have to ask God not to be, you know, not to be a drinker, right? Um, the, these, the, there's, a, there's something that prayer does in terms of how we approach sin. And it's important if you're addressing the source of sin that you recognize what prayer does to that discussion. It's, it's not just, it's not a discussion that you can, you can, uh, completely divide from its context and from the way you're expressing it. Okay. Wow. That's, uh, profound stuff. And the, the whole time you're talking, I was thinking, oh my goodness, have I ever tried to mansplain something to Miriam? <laughs> <laughs> Miriam and, and I spent about uh, four months in an office together, sharing an office. We had lots of conversations, which I'm pretty sure she mansplained everything to me. Um, okay, let's talk about demons, right? Um, so I'm going to quote one last bit to you of your own writing. Uh, you write about demons. Quote, the idea that demons cause sin provides cosmic significance and drama to the story of human sin. More importantly, it frees the audience from seeing itself as inherently sinful. In essence, the demonic view of sin diverts the audience's attention to external threats as opposed to their own internal landscape. At that, at the time, I'm sorry, at the same time, by portraying the outsider, whether Jew or Gentile, as completely subject to demonic influence, the author could indicate that the outsider was almost demonic himself, the true enemy of the insiders. And you've alluded to this uh, already in our discussion, uh, but in you know in the literature that you survey, do these strong views of of demons basically let humans off the hook for their sin? 
Uh, and I'm really interested to see if you have an, an opinion or a scholarly uh, estimate as to whether the, you think the New Testament leans more towards blaming demons for sin, blaming humans for sin, or a, a concatenation of both. Well, well the New De- Testament is interesting because, and I'm not the only person who's noticed this, the way the demonic possession works in the Gospels is not found in Second Temple literature, which is, so. and you're like, where does it come from? Because it's it's gotta be from somewhere we don't have because the way um the way demon kind of what you could call demonic possession is uh described like like in that in that prayer i was saying that the demonic forces are within me battling you know the laws of god so you have some control over these demons or you can ask god for help against the demons they don't just take you over and make you drown in the river right they don't just take you over and make you make you do whatever um which is more what they're likely to do let's say in the gospels um so um, so you can't, and, and what that means is that demons aren't, aren't usually used, they're, they're, except for one instant, which instance that I know of offhand, which is Damascus document, um, column 12. Let the listener know she's actually looking this up. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, you know, I, once, once I start thinking about it, here we are in 12, 2 to 6, okay, um, we have this unusual rule. Um, each man whom the spirits of Leal rule and speaks ap- uh, apostasy in accordance with the judgment of one who communicates with a ghost or a familiar spirit shall he be judged, okay? In other words, there's someone, the spirits of Leal are ruling over him, and we don't know what this is because they don't usually speak about things like that. Um, and he speaks apostasy. Um, he's going to be essentially executed. And each man who errs and profanes the Sabbath or the holy days shall not be put to death, for he is to be guarded by the sons of man, and if he is healed of it, they shall guard him for seven years, then he may enter the assembly. Now we here we have a very unusual situation where if he speaks apostasy, he's he's put to death. But if he breaks the Sabbath, he's he's considered he's under the influence of Belial. So they put him under house arrest. He doesn't get off scot free, but he doesn't get the full the full um um the he doesn't get the he doesn't have the full weight of the law brought on him. Right. So the question is why. Um, I think that maybe what's going on is he, um, because remember the Damascus document, um, Blial is used for a reason that people don't believe the law of the community. So it makes sense if he speaks apostasies because he doesn't believe in the law of the community, why would he speak apostasy? Blial must have had control, but it doesn't matter. He's speaking against the leaders, um, one assumes, and, and he's got to be cut out. Um, but maybe, and I'm, I'm not the only one who says this, but maybe, the profaning the Sabbath or the holy days is because he's following a different calendar. In other words, um, that he's actually saying, oh, I don't believe in our calendar. It's this other calendar is better. And then you're like, well, he's under the influence of Blial. Let's just sit on the guy for a while and, and hopefully he'll get over it and, and come back to the community. And then after he's, he's kind of chilled for a while after seven, after seven years, we can let him back in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to soak that up. The demon possesses and is like, I know what we're going to screw, screw with this guy. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to move him over to a Gregorian cha- uh, calendar. This is, this, is, this is admittedly me kind of reading into it, but 
if, because because we don't see demonic possession as a complete possession, it seems like what does it mean to be under the uh, under um, ruled by the spirits of Blial? And I think it means because already in the beginning of the Damascus document, we had this idea that Blial misleads as opposed to people just belonging to Blial. He, he misleads the, the evil leaders. By the way, belong to Blial, but but Blial himself misleads. So this this person is under the influence and he's been misled by Blial to follow a different law, right? He's following a different calendar and because he thinks that that's the correct calendar and not the community's calendar. Clearly he's been he's been somehow misled, something that by the way community members are supposed to be immune to. Um so but you could read it the other way. You could say this guy is this is a case of demonic possession and that's why I'm bringing it as, you know, well who knows? Okay, that's great. I, I do have one last question on demons yeah. because this always comes up in the Christian context. Um, do you get a sense, and this is kind of more of a feel for all of you understanding how demons are portrayed in these texts, uh, that these people would distinguish between kind of demonic influence and mental health issues? Or for them, do you think that they're just conflating those two things together? That is a really good question. Um, they I haven't seen, but then I wasn't looking for it, okay? I haven't seen um, that they were... Okay, let me, let, me, let me roll back a little. Disease is frequently attributed to demons. So one could see that... One could imagine a situation where someone went crazy or was, you know, exhibiting, you know, symptoms of craziness where they would say, this is a disease and it's from a demon. Um... Uh, in term, in the context of sin, I have not seen, um, I have not seen illness, I have not seen it conflated with mental illness, at least not in an obvious way. Excellent. Okay, we have arrived at that point in the interview where we ask you the question that we ask all of our guests. And that question, we can frame it several ways, but it's essentially... If you could choose for one school of thought, one idea, one presumption that everybody brings to scholarship in biblical studies, it can be outside, but we're looking mainly for biblical studies, that we could just evaporate it today and it would go away forever, what would you like to do away with? Well, since you say biblical studies, not specifically Dead Sea Scroll studies, I, I, I would say this desire for consistency, um, that, and again, it's, it's, it's mainly from my work in Second Temple period, but in general, this kind of, um, crazy desire we have for everything to be consistent and if it isn't consistent it must be from somewhere else and i'm not i'm not saying that it's never you know from anywhere else but but um this you know everything has to agree philosophically or logically and that's simply not not always the case and i think we need to allow for complexity in religious experience that's that's uh my uh you know Excellent. Okay. Well, this has been wonderful. I actually wanted to capture uh, on tape, as it were, uh, what it was like to sit in an office with you and listen to you just prolifically speak about these things which you've been uh, embedded in for so long. So I want to thank you for joining OnScript. Um, and, and so we're, uh, we're talking today with Dr. Miriam T. Brand on her book, uh, from, uh, Vandenhoek and Ruprecht, which is called Evil Within and Without the Source of Sin and Its Nature as Portrayed 
in Second Temple literature. Um, and now I know that you are also an avid podcaster and you have a website. And so maybe you could tell us, uh, I've listened to some of these. They're fantastic uh, where she breaks these things down in much more simple terms and kind of can educate the layperson on all of these details that she's found and more. Uh, where can they find more of your stuff at? Um, well, my website is understandingsin.com. So that's very easy to get to. Um, if you do a search also for Understanding Sin and Evil, which is the name of my podcast, you will find it. It's on iTunes and every other podcast aggregator. And uh, and it really does. It, 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 it takes the ideas in my book, but it, I start with a biblical text, and then I see how it plays out in the Second Temple period. Excellent. Well, thank you again very much for being with me today. And that is all we have for OnScript. One final note before I go. You may have noticed a few bumps and rumbles as we were recording, and that's because uh, I'm in this apartment in Jerusalem, and we only had one microphone, and so those rumbling noises were me moving the microphone back and forth between myself and Dr. Brand. Thank you for your patience with the audio quality. Hi, everyone. Thanks for staying on to the end here. I wanted to share some of the books that have impacted you. And we've got three that we're going to bring you at the end of this episode, and there will be more in the future. First one is from Lindsay Kennedy. And she said, without doubt, it is Gordon Fee's Pauline Christology, which I read around six years ago. She had taught through Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and it was dog's breakfast, she said. And she realized she needed some help thinking through Christology and stumbled upon Pauline Christology. And it was her introduction to academic works in biblical studies. And she didn't even know there were such things. It was mind-blowing. And it opened her eyes to a world of biblical scholarship that began her journey of deep study. Another one from Jeremy Shipper. And he shared the book Landscapes of the Song of Songs, Poetry in Place by Elaine James, and this is an Oxford publication this year. And he mentioned that this is a, a, a book that's part of a, a larger change in biblical studies uh, around the subject of poetry, and that Elaine James is part of a, a, a renewed interest in thinking again about the way that biblical poetry works. And, and he said that this is part of a, a trilogy of books that are reframing biblical poetry that Oxford University Press has out over the last few years, and the first two of those, uh, it's not a formal trilogy, but it's just that these are these are books that have come out from Oxford. And the first two are, the first one's by Chip uh, Dobbs-Alsop on biblical poetry, and then another one recently by J. Blake Cooey, and it's called The Poetry of First Isaiah. So if you're into biblical poetry, and this has a, you know, this, is, this has been a field of of intense analysis over the years, uh, people like uh, Adele Berlin and uh, James Kugel and others have have really done some pioneering work in that field. But but the the field is moving on, and and you know in the past couple of years these books have been really significant. Okay, the the last one I want to mention here is from Lindsay Stepan, and she said there was a fantastic a collection of essays in uh, Dan Block's book, How I Love Your Torah, O Lord, studies in the book of Deuteronomy, and it helps shift her thinking about the Torah and the ability to see Torah as a revelation of grace um, that enabled her to approach the entire Old Testament 
seeing Yahweh as a God who wants to be known. So thank you for those recommendations and for telling us a little bit about the books that have impacted you. 